1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, I'm Howard Burton, host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to present the following Pandemic Perspectives podcast, one of a special series of 24 podcasts that, together with our Pandemic Perspectives documentary and my book, Pandemic Perspectives A Filmmaker's Journey in 10 Essays, make up our comprehensive Pandemic Perspectives project looking at the COVID-19 crisis from a spectrum of different angles. Today's Pandemic Perspectives podcast features renowned psychologist Stephen Cosselin, who's combined a sterling academic career as the longtime Dean of Social Science at Harvard University with leading a number of highly innovative educational initiatives, such as being Founding Dean of Minerva Schools and President of Foundry College. These days, this acknowledged global leader in the science of learning runs Active Learning Sciences Incorporated, using his unique combination of theoretical and practical skills to examine how precisely the tools of modern technology can dramatically improve the educational experience for both teachers and students of all ages, making him an ideal person to talk to to try to put the enormous upheavals in education caused by the pandemic and the sudden rise in online learning into proper perspective. I thought I'd begin by asking you a question that I, I, I've meant to ask you, but I don't think I ever did. People might know of you as the longstanding dean of social science at Harvard University. They might know of you as one of the first psychologists who actively capitalized on brain imaging technology to advance the frontiers of psychology, and to some extent, I think, provide really strong bridges to neuroscience. They might even know of you as somebody who wrote several books on PowerPoint. When did your interest in the science of education begin?
0: Um, High school, actually. It was was actually the other way around. It was interest in education that got me interested in psychology and then neuroscience.
1: Interesting. Interesting. So, uh, and, and you've, you've kept with it, uh, uh, it's been in the back of your mind or, or did, it, did it permeate your, your work in psychology in terms of uh, questions about uh, epistemological questions? How do we know what we actually know? What is the process of learning? Am I biased? Did it, did it go like that? Or was it something that you thought, this is really interesting and then to some extent you shelved for a while and then came back to it later?
0: Somewhere between the two. Um, my original research project, which I started as a first year graduate student, was uh, on semantic memory. Uh, and I was using a paradigm that um, Alan Collins had developed where you give people sentences and they have to say whether they're true or false. It's very simple. You measure the response time. And he had this theory that long term memory is organized as a giant network, and that the further you, your brain needs to travel between different nodes to make the connections that, that are described in a sentence, the longer it should take. So I, so I was doing an experiment to um, contrast two theories of this, and I interviewed the people afterwards, the participants, and one of my, one of my items was uh, fleek and bite, uh, you know, animals bite, so I was expecting it to take a long time. Um, if it was based on a network but highly associated with fleas as biting so i thought it should be faster if they were not using this network thing which is simple associations but two people in a row answered no to that which i found astonishing having lived with cats many years <laughs> um yeah and i asked them afterwards because I, I would track this and i'd say you answered right. no in this why one said something like well i looked to see if it had a mouth and i couldn't see the mouth (laughs) they're sitting there right and and the next one said something also very visual you know i couldn't see how its mouth could get big enough to get around my skin or something something like that visual Mm -hmm. and i thought wow they're they're using visual mental imagery what does that have to do with any of this stuff yeah moving through big networks and computers So I just, I called everybody up on the phone back in the day, 1970, uh, and asked them if they'd use mental imagery or not when answering the questions. And it turned out that the people who said they did were faster for larger things than smaller things on the, they're all animals. And the people who didn't were responding based on how strong the associations were. So then I just set up a simple experiment to, contrast the two. For example, uh, does a mouse have whiskers? Well, it's highly associated with the mouse, but it's small in the mouse. Does a mouse have a back? Well, it's not very associated, but it's bigger. And it turned out that if you tell people to use mental imagery, they're faster to verify with the larger things, even though they're less associated. And vice versa, if you don't tell them to use imagery, you tell them to go as fast as they can. So, So that got me going, and suddenly I started, started thinking, why don't I just study this? How mental imagery can be used in fact retrieval, in knowledge, uh, utilization, and verification. And at the same time, I was reading Piaget, Jean Piaget, a Swiss uh, developmental psychologist, who it turned out emphasized the role of mental imagery in children prior to about age seven or so. And then it turned out there was a guy at Harvard named Jerome Bruner who was in similar theory and various other people had come up with the same kind of basic idea. So I thought, well, if I can understand mental imagery, maybe I can figure out how to teach kids more effectively. So I was still focused on sort of K-12 as it were. Um, hmm. But that was the connection. So I never forgot about that. And then what ended up happening is it broadened out and I got interested increasingly in in higher ed, although I'm now starting to think about high school again. But, uh, But again, it was this idea that if we understand how fundamental mechanisms used in memory and cognition, how we understand how they work, that'll put us in a better position to figure out how to play to people's cognitive strengths and not... Force them to do things that are not easy for them to do, and make learning uh, more frictionless.
1: Yeah. So, two questions to follow up. The first is: so that those people, uh, those two individuals who had a hard time, who, who assumed that fleas were not biting because they were they were using visual imaging of this notwithstanding the fact that fleas are very small they were presumably statistical outliers they were statistically significant out out of all all the people that you were asking because most people didn't have a problem with that because they were just associating so these guys were just uh they were revealing statistical outliers would that be a fair way to well
0: no it turned out about half of them uh really not many call my phone yeah i was shocked so I was surprised that it, it was close to half. I don't remember anymore. It's 1970 now. Uh, but it wasn't just those two people. Uh, other people were using metal imagery but didn't tell me afterwards uh, spontaneously. So there is an old, old literature going back to Sir Francis Galton uh, on individual differences in, in uses of imagery. And people have developed various kinds of questionnaires which have revealed something in the order of about 2% of the population does not use imagery. So most people do. It's a question of what context and so forth.
1: Okay. And the second question that I had was you mentioned Jean Piaget, and my dim recollection is that he also wrote quite a bit about educational theory. Mm -hmm. Was that something that you were involved in or influenced by at all?
0: Zero. I, I read quite a quite a bit of his empirically-based work on development uh, in infancy and then uh, up to adolescence. I've read less of it when he got in the so-called formal operations at the end, which was I, I don't think as well-developed as the, earlier, the work on the earlier stages. Um, but no, I, did, I, I didn't read any of his educational stuff. Um,
1: huh. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So the, the other thing that I, w- I wanted to ask you is you've had some singular experiences that have, in my view, that have really even transcended the this whole question of education. In particular, again, as somebody who has had a, a long and very significant career at, at the world's elite universities, then you, you left over the past, I don't remember exactly how long it's been, perhaps 10 years or so. You left Harvard for Stanford, you left Stanford for Minerva, then you, you, you did great work at Minerva, you, you were involved in setting up Foundry College, now you have active learning sciences. You're somebody who has had, at least from my perspective, a singular combination of experiences in both formal academe at the highest levels, as well as in the real world, as it were, uh, not just in terms of uh, working day to day with adult learners, with, uh, uh, with new institutions and so forth, but also with individuals who were involved in ed tech, with individuals from the corporate sector and so forth. Mm-hmm. To what extent have your experiences shed light on the advantages and disadvantages of the academic world?
0: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um... I've become increasingly aware of how poorly the educational system is serving most people. That is, I think it does a fine job for, for lack of a better word, the elite who are interested in knowledge for knowledge's sake and are not especially worried about a job because they know they're going to land on their feet. They come from families that can help them and the networks they're embedded in and so on. Um, But I think probably even the majority of people, just based on data, this is not a very good fit. uh, That many people would do much better if they were being taught skills and knowledge that they could use to help them live a better life. I don't just mean a fuller life by having furniture of the mind, understanding literature, and so the usual justification for liberal arts education. I'm talking about foundational knowledge, like how to solve problems, how to think critically, how to communicate well with other people, how to work on teams, how to be a leader. I mean, all these things that you see employers continually asking for and reporting in surveys that they're not finding it in graduates of colleges and universities. I think that there's a huge need for taking a step back and rethinking what the curriculum ought to look like. That is, the standard curriculum in, as far as I know, virtually all, if not all, Western universities has three components. It has general education, the major, and electives. And it's been that way for a long time. And that structure invites faculty to structure the curriculum around what they do. So in particular, the majors are essentially designed to create mini-mes. The electives are often what the faculty are interested in. They offer a seminar on whatever. And general education is not taken that seriously, which is supposed to be providing this foundation, but it's often just, here's three columns. you know, here's some courses, introductory courses, in natural science. here are one. Here are ones in humanities, here are ones in social sciences, take two in each. And that's general education. And there's no, no structure, no sort of thought about how this is going to actually do what it's supposed to do, which would provide a foundation for the future. So I think there's lip service paid to that, but I, but I think it's not taken as seriously as it should in most places. There are exceptions, but not, not in most places. And that a lot of students would be much better served if universities and colleges took a step back and asked the question what do these students need to learn to be able to have to live good lives to be able to not only be launched on a career when they leave but have the mental tools to be able to adapt as the world changes so one thing we know for sure is things are to keep changing and and yet there's very little attention paid to what you need to know and and when I say no I mean not just declarative kinds of facts and concepts and so on, but also skills. What do, you, what do you need to be able to do to be able to adapt and flourish as the world changes? So th- that that has become very clear to me as I've gotten more embedded in, in a broader frame than I, than I used to.
1: Yeah, that's a great segue to turn to the impact of the pandemic, which I will shortly do. And you've opined on during our previous filming session. But before I do... Let me ask one more question, that's related to what you're saying about the sociology. I wonder if there might be a bit of a, a, a schism, or or at least a lack of appropriate overlap between people who do education theory and people who actually do education. Hmm. So the people who are theorists, uh, and I mean, and I mean by that not just at the at the post secondary level, but also at the secondary level, and. and and below, lower levels, in terms of what are we doing with education? How should we move forward with education? What are the skills or the attitudes the and the and, predispositions and so forth that the students have to learn? They're often, not always, but often, very often, people who aren't actually the ones on the front lines doing the education. Do mm-hmm. you think that there's a problem there, or do you think that that's just a natural development?
0: I think there's a problem if you're just doing theory without any contact with the empirical base. You need both the data to ground your theory in initially, because your theory is going to be based on organizing phenomena and trying to come up with some explanatory principles underlying those patterns. But also, once you have a theory, it generates hypotheses, and you should be defining metrics just to see whether there's anything to it. So. Let
1: me turn, as promised, to the pandemic-related aspect of this, because I think what you were saying fits in very well. A primary reason for the genesis of the Pandemic Perspective film was my determination to, quote-unquote, harness the opportunity provided by the pandemic, not just to try to turn back the clock and how can we get back to the way we did things before, but actually reassess to what extent we're moving in the right direction on a whole host of different subjects. And one of them, of course, is education. And you talked about active learning in your filmed comments and the importance of active learning. Some of that was happening already before the pandemic in terms of people's awareness that we should be rethinking some of these ideas. Mm -hmm. But how much do you think was really given a push by the pandemic? How much influence do you think the pandemic had in forcing at least some people to confront the importance of active learning?
0: Right, so the active learning has been around a long time. This is not a new idea, and there there are many um, species of it, like problem based learning, for example, is quite popular in some circles so it's it's been around. but I think what happened with the pandemic is a lot of instructors suddenly had no choice but to teach online, and they were teaching synchronously, not the usual traditional kind of online course, which was Know asynchronous, like an electronically mediated correspondence course in some ways. I mean, people were reading and responding at their own pace, not with other people, and so forth. So, using Zoom and WebEx and BlueJeans and so forth uh, to teach made faculty realize that they couldn't just keep teaching the way they were teaching before. That is, reading a lecture into a camera just really doesn't cut it. Uh, We know that MOOCs that massive um, open online courses have retention rates somewhere in their completion rate, somewhere in the order of seven to 9%. People just don't like passively sitting there and listening to this sort of thing. So I think that combined with the tools that were available, like even on zoom, where you can set up breakout rooms. So you can have people signed in advance using a spreadsheet. There are lots of things you can do that are actually pretty easy and it turned out to be easier to do online than in person. I mean, you do breakout groups in person. You have them drag chairs into the corner of the rooms or go another room, physically move. Right. It's a lot of noise and it disrupts. And, whereas push a button on the computer. So I, I think somewhere into it, not immediately, a lot of instructors came to realize that actually this isn't all bad. There are some things they can do that make it more interesting. And those things turned out to be... Varieties of active learning, even if they hadn't heard that term before. Yeah. Just realizing that you could have them do like a think pair share, you know, put put pairs together, think about it a little bit. We'll put pairs together, you discuss it, and then come back. Uh, you can do that in person. But you may not have thought of doing it in person, but given the ease of doing this sort of thing without disrupting anybody else, because pairs are separate, it came very easy. And and then there was a feedback loop that once instructors realized that they had the ability to do these kinds of active learning exercises, started getting interested in it and looking into what what the literature had to say. There's a lot out there on how to do it.
1: Yeah. Listening to you talk, I can't help but wonder if there's sometimes an issue with respect to nomenclature. Mm. So let me tell you what I mean by that. So Schools close, and all of a sudden, everybody starts waving their hands and saying, oh my goodness, we have to use computers. It's all online learning, online learning, online learning. And there's a sense that this is forced on us by circumstances, which of course was largely true. And then people start associating this thing, online learning, with even a different way of learning. And what what I'm hearing from you is... Well, actually there are different aspects to the learning process that we should be paying attention to. And to what extent we're online or not online is a question of which tools we should be regarding as more effective or less effective or what have you in terms of asynchronous learning. When you talk about breakout rooms, this might be a good idea to be doing, but hey, it actually might work better online in terms of less disturbance and so forth and so on. So rather than looking at online learning as a thing, Mm. I think uh, what I'm hearing from you is something that you're looking at understanding the learning process and recognizing how to embrace particular tools to be able to best capitalize on different aspects of the learning process.
0: That's exactly right. And in fact, I just finished writing something on, on hybrid education where people typically think of that as just combining in-person with online, and I realized probably a better way to think about it is in terms of a two-by-two table, where you've got modes, synchronous and asynchronous. They're independent, working on their own, or together. Those are the columns, say. And then settings, in-person or online, so virtual. So that gives you four possibilities. I went through each of those cells and thought about what you can do most easily. So, for example, the synchronous uh, virtual is very easy to set up small groups right. and to do various kinds of active learning. Uh, whereas uh, in-person asynchronous, it, that's the way you'd do like the first part of a flipped classroom where you'd have them on their own doing a lot of content absorption. Right. So you can go through each of these cells and think about what's strongest and then take a step back and say, okay, given your goals the constraints, that is what things you have to work around, and the resources, things you have you can leverage, what combination of these should you take advantage of? So it, it turns out it's actually remarkably straightforward once you start thinking of it this way. And that if you think of those four possibilities, four cells, there are actually 11 combinations of them. So you have six pairs, and then you have four that are three at a time, and then you have all four of them. So that gives you. 11, which is a lot of different possibilities. It's not just two at a time. It turns out that by looking at it this way, you can start zeroing in on you know, when it's easy to scale at really large, when they don't have computers, maybe only have smartphones. What can you do? And respecting those constraints. So that way of looking at things, I think, is going to turn out to be really valuable going forward. I don't think things are returned to the way they were before. I think faculty have. Come to appreciate that there is some value to teaching online, but there's also some value to being in person. I mean, if you're going to talk about something that has any kind of emotional content, you're way better off, at least initially, being in person because the the nonverbals, the whole body language thing is, is better in person, given resolution limits and so forth. But I don't think it's going to turn out there's any one best modality. I think it's going to turn out going forward, depending on what your goals are, what your constraints are, what your resources are, different combinations are going to turn out to be useful.
1: Yeah. And there's education in the formal sense, which is to say education in the classroom, broadly defined, whether you're physically in a classroom or not. But there's also education in terms of to what extent we have a well-educated society. And I think the pandemic has highlighted some areas of concern for some people in terms of critical thinking abilities in terms of misinformation and the willingness to believe uh, unhesitatingly whatever uh, crazy theories are being perpetrated here, there, and everywhere. When you say that things won't be going back the way they were in formal education, that the pandemic will have a considerable legacy for formal education, to what extent do you think it might have a legacy for informal education or broad-based public education? And to what extent do you think we're actually learning our lessons in terms of how we have to enhance critical thinking writ large across the society? That's a lot of questions. I realize it's not even really terribly coherent. That's my style, as you might have picked up from previous conversations.
0: (laughs) No no, no problem. Um, (laughs) Right. So... The question, as I understood it, at least the question I'll choose to focus on, <laughs> is uh, has the pandemic highlighted the need for, we call it informal education, of the sort that you need to be a good citizen to be, to be a functioning society, and for society as a whole to become more healthier than it is now? And I, I regret to report it. I don't think so. And I, I think a couple of reasons for that one is the kinds of things we're thinking about, like critical thinking, which has not been well characterized. There's, I don't think there's a whole lot of consensus on exactly what it is, and it's probably because it's a heterogeneous category. There are lots of different types, and, and they need to be analyzed, identified and figure out how to teach them. But I think there's a deeper problem also, which is that the single greatest problem in the science of learning is called the problem of transfer. It's sort of, you know what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, but it's what happens in the classroom often just stays in the classroom. So transfer is about learning information or skills in one context and then being able to apply it in another. And there are two types, there's near and far. Where near is it looks pretty similar. And far is where the, on the surface, they look really different. People are really bad at this. It doesn't come naturally at all. I mean, I, I heard a, a report of um, a course taught at Harvard, actually, on intro physics for non-majors. And uh, the faculty member decided he better use a lot of real-world examples. And baseball. Baseball has a lot of physics in it. You know, Newton's third law, you know, bad ball, that sort of thing. Yeah. He used so many examples from baseball during the course, he'd run out of them by the time he got to the, the final. So for the final, he used football.
1: And everybody failed.
0: The image I have is, is of pitchforks and torches, and they were up in arms. It isn't fair. The whole course was about baseball, and for the final, you fooled us. You made it about football. How could you? I mean, it, classic. That's near transfer. Classic example of failure, failure of transfer. But it happens all the time, and far transfer is even worse. We don't realize the underlying similarities. So it's a hard problem. It's a really hard problem. And it's got many layers. Uh, So on one layer, people may have the wrong mental model. So Don Norman has this beautiful example of where people go into a room that's too cold. And so they turn the thermostat up to 100. And then it heats up and it gets too hot. So they turn the thermostat down to 60. The problem is their mental model is a th- they think the thermostat's like a valve. And if they open it more, they'll get more heat in. And if they close it tighter, but it's not. It's a kind of switch. It just turns on or turns off the furnace, depending on whether our threshold's reached. People have the wrong mental model. So to get transfer, you first got to think about what the mental model is and whether it's appropriate. And then you've got to help them realize the circumstances, the conditions in which it's going to apply, which may not be completely similar on the surface. So the only way to do that is with lots of examples and make sure they understand the, the connection between them, even though the examples may look different on the surface. So these things are hard. and They're hard to do informally. So I've been thinking lately about how to do this and also how to motivate people. So now I'm going to take you up on your offer. Let me ramble a little bit. and You can insert questions later. Go for it. A lot of people don't go to college, don't, not even community college, because they don't see the relevance. And they may not see it ever, but they may return as adults. And when they return as adults, what you find is they, they've come to appreciate that maybe some of this foundational knowledge really is useful. But it's not, it doesn't wear its value on its sleeve, necessarily. The way academic subjects are typically taught, they're taught for their own sake. It occurred to me that you could integrate academic topics into a job. Now, there's only two categories of motivation. You've got intrinsic motivation, which they don't see. They don't see it as learning the academic stuff is is useful. So the the other, other alternative is extrinsic. So you could pay them, have them do a job, but do two things. Embed academic topics in the job, say an hour in the morning and an hour in the afternoon are dedicated for learning objective chunks i would do slices of content so it's thin and it's spread out over time and it's it's going to keep their attention for 15 minutes or something have them do content delivery offline like a flip classroom where they're watching videos and so on but the key is to integrate it into what they're actually doing so that if you're teaching literature you teach some underlying message some moral that's being taught and have them look to see how it's relevant for what they're doing make it active learning integrate it into the job and have a feedback loop to these learning objective chunks where you you have a goal there's a learning objective you're teaching them something for a reason and you're having them integrate it into what they're then doing on this job now different kinds of jobs you can have different kinds of learning objectives So. In standard Western higher education, you've got general education the major and electives. And typically they're in roughly that order where the general ed stuff can leak through the entire. It's not taken seriously enough to be a prerequisite to anything. So, but the, the, the major is structured and typically students want to get to the major because that's what they're really interested in. I would kind of flip it around. I would probably want to start with the electives. And have them do like month rotations of different kinds of things, except often students don't know what they're interested in. Right. And, and moreover, they don't know what they're good at. So there's a kind of interesting feedback loop. They may start thinking they're interested in math, but then it turns out they're not that good at math. Well, they get less, less interested. And it turns out they didn't know anything about economics. And hmm, they're good enough at math to actually do economics pretty well, even though they can't become a professional mathematician. So I would I would start with the electives actually and short, sort of tastes, give them a little teaser, and then have them choose a kind of major, as it were, a track where you get them a job in that track that's gonna last better part of a year. And you do this integration of the academic material with what they're actually doing so they they can see its relevance and and use it. Because I, I think what active learning is all about is, is learning by using. It's not learning by doing. It's using information in some way that you can see why it, it's valuable. Right. No one's tried this, to my knowledge. It would be expensive. You have to pay them. It's a real job. It's not a volunteer thing. You'd pay them. That's the external extrinsic motivation at work. But I, I, I suspect that something like this could turn out to be effective for a broad swath of population that doesn't find traditional academic setting or context, particularly motivating.
1: So there are two things, without getting into the details of uh, of what you're suggesting, that I think are really worth picking up on. One is this question of motivation, and the other is this acknowledgement of ignorance, which is to say, uh, and really in the literal meaning of that word, uh, people don't know. They might have biases. They might think things are one way when they're really the other way. They don't have enough experience to be able to know what it is that really interests them. And when you're younger, that's quite understandable because very often the things that you're presented with are distorted and they don't actually give an accurate portrayal of the possibility. So rather than just speak in these vague generalities, let me try to give you a concrete example. And once again, perhaps it seems like I'm fixated on this, but I'm going to invoke my own experiences with respect to the pandemic. So I have a physics background, as you know. And for me, biology was incredibly boring stuff when I was in high school because biology was all about just knowing the names for stuff and memorizing things. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't done according to any form of principles or any form of mechanistic understanding It was just, you have to learn the name for this and you have to learn the name for that and you have to memorize these structures in a cell. And it was all sorts of stuff that struck me as incredibly boring and uninteresting. And as I aged, I became dimly aware that there were obviously interesting aspects to it. But by and large, I still subscribed to that overall orientation. Mm -hmm. And then the pandemic hit. And then I had to ask myself questions like, I don't actually have the slightest idea how a vaccine works in general. Hmm. Any vaccine, let alone an mRNA vaccine or anything like that. I don't really know what's going on. I don't really know what's happening in our immune system. I've heard the word antibody. I don't really know what the heck that is. I don't really know anything. So I started to look at some of these things. And while I I certainly don't profess any level of expertise, I know a lot more now than I did two years ago. Mm -hmm. And it's incredibly fascinating. It's unbelievably fascinating. I have this, there's almost a sense of anger. Why the hell didn't anybody tell me <laughs> this sort of thing? Why, why, mm. why was biology presented in my formative years as this incredibly boring memorization riddled business? Now, of course, a lot of it, I wasn't sufficiently uh, disciplined and I could have read things by myself and I could have done more. So I'm not just unilaterally blaming society, but of course, when you're young, you don't know. And when you're young, you, you, you do mirror what's around you. And and if people aren't sufficiently portraying the possibilities and the information and the mysteries and and the wonder about the world around us, then we're likely to overlook it. Even people who are naturally disposed to, to that sort of thing. I mean, if you had to base what reality was like from what you were told in high school or what you could glean from your experiences in high school, you'd be sadly out of touch with the world around you. And the truth is, that's the way most of us, that's a formative stage in our lives. That's when most of us started making key decisions about what we were going to do with our lives. So it's really, really significant to be able to recognize that and then build systems that somehow appreciate that, I would say.
0: I agree. So somehow, I'm reminded of this one liner that uh, Eddington once said, which is uh, never trust a fact that hasn't been confirmed by a theory. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I thought it was cute. But there's a a deep insight there, which is when I think about applications, when I think about relevance, when I think about teaching people uh, using active learning by motivating them that they can use this information in some way, they need to have a conceptual understanding of what it is they're doing. For example, there's a foundation here in New York which teaches high school dropouts how to fix cell phones. Turns out after three years, they're out of a job. Why? Cell phones changed. They didn't have a theory of how cell phones work right. and how technology is evolving. So they couldn't adapt to a changing world. So my view is that what you were describing is the mystery and wonder and all that is fantastic. That's great. A lot of people are not attracted by that, by the way, but people are attracted by understanding things in a way that they, they can then see that it's going to help them moving forward, that they can use that knowledge. So I, I don't think we should be doing the equivalent of vocational education where we teach people to fix cell phones. We should be giving them broad swaths of understanding that are principle-driven. So for example, with biology, if you don't start with the theory of evolution, you don't understand how anything fits together. I mean, that, that theory just permeates everything at multiple levels of scale. So to teach biology these days, when you don't organize it that way, is, is extremely difficult. The idea that evolution has become politicized is bizarre to me. I mean, you can integrate with religion if you like, but uh, you don't have to, but you can. It doesn't have to be done as an opposition even if if that's how you approach it. But the bottom line is theories are really useful.
1: When you look at other countries in the world and what they're doing with education, do you see places that you can point to and say, yeah, they're doing things a little bit more along the lines of what I would recommend or what I would endorse or or what I would support over here? or, Or perhaps even without even leaving the United States, you can look at different regions, you can look at different micro-regions, different experimental schools. Are there examples when you can point to where people have really, in your view, more or less got it right, or at least got the main things right?
0: Yeah, they're not, they're not regions, for sure. They're actually disciplines. And for largely, I think, accidental reasons, it turns out the physics community is really the the wellspring of a lot of innovation in uh, educational methodology. That is, you look at people like Eric Mazur, or Carl Wyman, I mean, there's a long list. They're all physicists by training. They're the ones who went to the cognitive psychology literature and said, oh, they've studied how people become experts. Why don't we use that to actually teach them? I mean, no cognitive psychologists that I know have thought about it that way. None that I know of. Maybe there are some, but I don't know them. And they they have done just brilliant jobs of developing new techniques, like uh, Eric Mazur is something he calls peer instruction, which is really smart and very effective. It's the other thing because their physics background they develop metrics and they actually measure pre-post whether this intervention works or not. And they look at what motivates the students. And if there's a problem, as there has been in some cases, they figure out ways to try to ameliorate it. I mean, the, the physics community is, is doing an amazingly good job, and it's not getting out the way it should anyway. It's, it's not spreading to other disciplines, even in STEM, like biology, I don't see it anyway. Hmm. It should. It, it is starting to. I, I'm being too harsh. It is starting to. But it, it is remarkable how so much of the innovation in teaching methodology that I'm aware of, in the, in the sense of people who are actually doing the teaching, developing the theories and methods, using their own opportunities to teach as a way to test, uh, being completely transparent about it, by the way. It's not that, that students are uh, unwilling participants. Um, and and it, it's, it's turned out to be amazing. I'm just very impressed at how much useful knowledge has come out of the physics community about teaching.
1: Hmm. That's interesting. But... Something which I think tends to get overlooked, when physicists talk about a first principle approach, there's a, there's a downside to this, which is when you learn all these first principles approaches, it often turns out not to reflect our experience. So for example, the famous falling ball thought experiment, or perhaps real experiment that Galileo performed at the Leaning Tower of Pisa, that's invoked everywhere as as a demonstration of what you will, the, the, the beauty and the power of thought experiments, the power of logic, a priori thinking, uh, the genius of Galileo, the power of experimentation, depending on who you are, all sorts of people claim, all sorts of things. But, but what is often swept under the rug ever so daintily is that if you were to go to the Tower of Pisa and drop two balls, a heavy ball and a light ball, the heavy ball would fall first. <laughs> so, uh, not by a whole lot, and, and we understand why, but if you were to actually do it, that's what would happen. And that's what people are used to seeing happen around them. Right. Th- that shows that the, the first principles actually do come into conflict. Not always, of course. Right. But people are used to the idea that what they are being told in these overarching laws is not necessarily what they will actually directly
0: experience. Right. So that brings us to another big problem, which is statistically, you can make a distinction between main effects and interaction effects. So main effect is just variations along a single variable, you know, like uh, temperature as a function of uh, month. Interaction is where one variable modulates the effects of another variable. So take temperature. Well, it depends uh, whether you're in the North Hemisphere or Southern Hemisphere as to how warm it's going to be in a given month. So the effect of month now isn't just the main effect. It's an interaction. Humans have a hard time thinking in terms of interaction. Most things in the real world are interactions. That's a problem. So that example you gave of the larger ball, you've got to think about you know, air resistance and this and that and the other, other kinds of things, as well as effective gravity. And they're all there at the same time. Yeah. So we have trouble with that. And so one, one of the courses that we developed at Minerva was on complex systems, as a general education course, by the way that we thought understanding the idea of complex systems was fundamental to be able to navigate the world. I, st- I still think that. But I think that is a, that is a fundamental problem. Um, but I, I think it also comes right back to transfer again, that you may learn this stuff in class with examples, but then you don't automatically see how they apply to things you encounter in the real world that may not look exactly the like what you got in class. It has to be taught explicitly.
1: Yeah. Let me just ask a few questions to conclude. So what about people who disagree with you? I always like to ask this uh, to get a sense of the landscape. Yeah. So those that have issues with any aspect of what it is that you've been talking about today, the importance of active learning, the importance of incorporating different aspects of technology the importance of, of trying to key into student motivations and, and, and try to equip people, trying to consider first and foremost what students should be learning in order to flourish in the world in all sorts of different ways. What would the criticisms be that you're hearing from, from different people? First of all, where would they come from and what would they be saying?
0: So I think um, some people I've talked to uh, feel that I am opposed to a liberal arts education. And I'm not opposed to it. I think it's great for people who want that sort of thing, uh, you know, furniture of the mind and so on. And they push back and say that, that I am in some ways trivializing what the consequences of liberal arts education are, that even by my own metrics, the things that I, I have focused on, it, it is valuable in that what a liberal arts education does is give you a toolkit and you don't know uh, whether or when what you've learned may turn out to, to be useful for you. So, for example, I remember talking to a student who graduated Yale recently and he met some guy in Montana who is a Yale alum. They have a network, uh, somebody... In government there. And it turned out the guy's hobby was Roman history or something. And the student had taken a course. And so he was able to engage in a conversation with this guy and something he found really useful. And, it, and they bonded over it. Who would have anticipated that? And that liberal arts education does that. It, it gives you a whole set of arrows in the quiver. You, you don't know, no idea whether they'll be relevant or not. They can, they can be. But above and beyond that, they enrich your life. So that's a common kind of response I get back, which, which I acknowledge there's some substance to. I don't disagree, but I just don't think it's for everybody. And I think that that kind of education in some ways is a luxury and that we need first to figure out how to help people be able to keep up with what's happening in the 21st century, be not left behind, be able to have the knowledge and skills will allow them to flourish. So I, I think from the point of view of society and having citizens who, who can function well, we need to be thinking about something else as well as a, as a liberal arts education.
1: Yeah. Let me ask you one more question before we wrap up. Again, with respect to the, to the pandemic and its legacy, perhaps, but not necessarily with respect to education, how do you think future historians will regard this time? Some people two hundred years from now, assuming as a species we manage to to produce future historians in a few hundred years, how do you think they'll they'll look at this time? Do you think that they will regard it as a as a watershed, as as significant in any way, or do you think it won't even merit a footnote?
0: Oh, I I think it's enormously significant. It's as significant as the industrial revolution. Uh, I I think it's just huge upheavals, and it, it's not just because of information technology. It's also climate change and just massive changes in, in many different dimensions that are going to force some kind of reconfiguration of society, societies. And we can't, at least I can't anticipate what that's going to look like. It's a, a good example of a complex system. And I, I think the way historians are going to look at it, it's going to depend on how it comes out, yeah. uh, you know, to the victors, et cetera.
1: That's a good answer. Well, Stephen, thank you very much. I had a wonderful time speaking to you as expected, and, uh, and it was really a, it was really a pleasure to connect with you again.
0: Ditto that. It is always a pleasure to talk to you, Howard, because you really do try to get to the bottom of things and think about what the essential issues are. And yes, sometimes your, your questions may reflect in real time that effort, but it really is part of your charm, and I, I very much enjoy talking to you.
1: I hope you enjoyed this Pandemic Perspectives podcast. Once again, our Pandemic Perspectives documentary, released in early March 2022, is available for rent or purchase through the Ideas Roadshow app. While the accompanying book, Pandemic Perspectives A Filmmaker's Journey and 10 Essays, is available in print and ebook through all major book distributors and an audiobook on the Ideas Roadshow app. See ideasroadshow.com for more details.